One of the most vulnerable periods of human life is the period of development in the womb during pregnancy. Exposures and events during pregnancy have important influences on the outcome of pregnancy and the health and well-being of the newborn child. Furthermore, what happens in pregnancy and the early stages of infancy can have a profound impact on child and adolescent development and may even affect the health of individuals as adults. Life course epidemiology and related fields of study are building evidence for the role of early adverse experiences during pregnancy and infancy on later health and well-being in childhood and adulthood, as well as possible intergenerational effects, meaning the health of future generations may be affected by a pregnancy today. A growing understanding of the impact of events during pregnancy and infancy can lead to improvements in the health of babies and entire populations. But it can also create quite a bit of fear and anxiety in expecting mothers and new parents who may be scared that their actions can put their children on the wrong path for the rest of their lives. Expecting a child in the modern world involves a great deal of do's and don'ts and second guessing every choice in order to make sure you're doing the best for your child. I should know, my wife and I are expecting twins. And actually my co-host Haley, who I'll introduce soon, has a uh, new infant at home. So much of what we will be discussing on this episode is of great personal interest, as I'm sure it is for many of you. As we and anyone who is expecting or caring for a newborn can attest, developing a solid evidence base for exposures that actually cause harm or bring about good outcomes versus those that can be ignored or taken with a grain of salt is extremely helpful. I'm your host, Brian James, Associate Professor at Rush University Medical Center, and this is Epidemiology Counts from the Society for Epidemiologic Research, a podcast that gives you up-to-date information on the state of health research straight from researchers who are deeply involved with this work. In previous podcast episodes, we discussed infertility and how to get pregnant, then we discussed maternal mortality and how to keep mothers safe during delivery. Today, we'll focus on the health of the newborn baby during pregnancy and infancy as we discuss the latest findings in perinatal epidemiology. I'm joined once again by a voice that listeners of our SCR podcast will be familiar with, Haley Bannock, Assistant Professor in Department of Epidemiology and Environmental Health at the University of Buffalo. Haley, thank you for joining us on EpiCounts again, and congratulations on the newest member of your family. Hey, Brian. Thanks. And uh, it's, it's great to be back. It's always fun recording with you. Awesome. All right, Haley, could you please introduce our guest who will be providing expertise on perinatal epidemiology? Absolutely. So I am very excited to welcome Dr. Robert Platt, um, who is a professor in the departments of pediatrics and of epidemiology, biostatistics, and occupational health. Uh, EBOH at McGill University. He is also interim chair of the Department of EBOH and holds the Albert Boehringer Endowed Chair in Pharmacoepidemiology. His research focuses on improving methods for the study of medications using administrative data with an emphasis on methods for causal inference and a substantive focus on pharmacoepidemiology in pregnancy. Uh, he was also on my thesis dissertation committee, and Ooh. I am very excited to have him here and talk to him today. So, uh, Rob, <laughs> welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. I look forward awesome. to the conversation. Great. I didn't know that, Haley. Okay, mm -hmm. that's, that's cool. He's the, he's the methods guy. Well, in yeah. addition to the other methods guys, but yes, yeah. it, was, it was a pleasure to work with him. And now you get to ask him questions instead of the that's other That's right. That's why I invited him, right? Because it's my <laughs> turn to ask the tough questions. <laughs> Cool. All right. Well, let's start with a tough question here. So 
Um, you know, let's set the stage. Why is it so difficult to get answers to important questions that women and families want to know about pregnancy? Okay, so it, sometimes it feels like the Wild West out there when you get into guidelines and recommendations about pregnancy. So is letting women rely on Facebook moms groups and Google the best we can do? How can we really get information on what is healthy for our children, for our newborns? Robert. I, I think it's probably worth starting with the, the idea that, or the, the fact that studying pregnancy is just really a hard problem for epidemiologists, for, for us. And there's a number of reasons why that's so. Uh, First of all, pregnancy is a very short time window in which obviously lots is going on. The fetus is going from an embryo to a newborn. Lots is changing in, in the mother's body as well. Um, even after the birth in the first year of the baby's life, lots is happening. The development is really rapid. Um, we're dealing with exposures that could affect the mother, could affect the fetus, and then could affect the baby's long-term development. And that, that's just a lot to ask of a, a, a study. Um, we would like to see randomized trials that study exposures during pregnancy. That would be ideal, but those are hard to come by because they're logistically challenging and they're uh, sometimes challenged by ethical issues. We don't want to expose a, a mother and a fetus to something that you don't need to uh, in order to learn about it. Right. Um, it's also hard to study behaviors in pregnancy because well-known phenomenon that good behaviors tend to cluster together and bad behaviors or less good behaviors tend to cluster together as well. So separating out which factors are driving what appear to be associations is a challenging problem. Hmm. Last thing about this, the, the reassuring thing about studying pregnancy and the thing that, that I come back to that, that reassures me and reassured me when my kids were, were uh, when my wife was pregnant and my kids were young is that by and large, most pregnancies uh, end well and as expected. Hmm. Bad outcomes in the babies and bad outcomes in the mothers are rare, which is, which is great. From a, but from an epidemiologic perspective, it makes our studies challenging because we need enormous studies to find anything. So, um, it, so it is just a hard problem to study. Got it. Yeah, makes a lot of point. Haley, you have a follow up? Yeah, so I, I mean, I was just going to follow up also a little bit on um, Brian's question, I guess, about this wild west feeling that that's sort of out there and there's a lot that's common sense you know i i think most pregnant moms would know you know you don't want to drink an excessive amount of alcohol uh, you know during pregnancy there's a lot of, of common sense recommendations but um how how do we get this information good information to pregnant moms and families um you know to help advise them it's it's sort of you, I don't know how often you're on Facebook mom groups, but, um, you know, there's so much bad information out there. How, how can we do a better job of getting the good information about the topics that matter to, to families? That's a really challenging question. And, um, the, the way I sometimes think about 
that problem is a little bit by example. And the, the one case where it's clear that epidemiology has had, or, or a case where it's clear epidemiology has had an enormous effect on, on baby's health and, and that results have been dramatic is in the, the sudden infant death syndrome and, mm. and the sleep case where the studies showed sort of repeatedly and robustly that putting the baby on the back to sleep was, a, was associated with a lower risk of, of SIDS. Mm-hmm. And that was consistent and that seemed to work well. And then, at least I remember this from, from visiting my pediatrician's office when the, my kids were young, the, the public health authorities, at least in Montreal, just overwhelmed uh, young parents with that message that back to sleep was the, was the right thing to do. That, and when I think about that, that worked well in the, the early two, late 90s, early 2000s. It may not work in the social media space that we're in now where there's so much misinformation, alternate information, et cetera. I think, you know, perhaps this is a case where public health and and clinicians need to think how to how to deliver that information in a yes. way that gets the right information across. Um, the other thing that I think is probably worth uh, considering with that problem, and this is a really hard one in terms of risk communication with um, with uh, the public that often we're, we're in situations where we've done some epidemiologic research or we've done studies and the answers aren't as conclusive as we like. Right. And the, the misinformation providers are really comfortable being very conclusive about what they know. <laughs> yes. They know. Yes. And, and we're always trying to say, well, we don't really understand this phenomenon fully, or there's a lot of uncertainty around what we think here. We need to get better at communicating that, and then thinking about how we communicate about, you know, what's a, what's a, in spite of the fact that we don't know, what's a reasonable risk minimization approach that you can take with, mm-hmm. with yourself and your baby. Absolutely, and, and there's so much judgment involved, right? You know, when we when we think we know something that's good for a baby, then all of a sudden it's you better do it or you're a bad parent, you know? And I think, um, you know, it was interesting, Haley, that you used the example of it when you were talking about common sense in the beginning, you used the example of alcohol, you know, you know, it's common sense, don't drink excessively. But even there, you know, there's this big question of, well, what is excessively? You know, I mean, there's, there's so much controversy over alcohol and over whether a little bit's okay, or if total abstinence is is the only way to go to, in order to be safe. You know, full disclosure, my wife works for the American Academy of Pediatrics, and uh, she actually advised me not to even go there on this topic because she's like, it's so controversial. But um, I know that the AAP advises no alcohol at all during pregnancy. And I don't want to speak for the AAP or certainly not for my wife, but I believe a lot of that is because if you even let there be a little bit of nuance to people determining what's too much or too little, uh, people don't, you know, aren't going to make that judgment correctly. So the safest way to do it is just say none, even though 
it's probably okay to have maybe one glass of wine here and there during the second, third trimester. I'm not saying that. We're going to ask Robert for the actual expert opinion on that. But it is an interesting point where there's a, there's a definite risk communication versus outcome, you know, versus maybe the reality of where we draw a threshold and, and which side of that line do you err on? So what, what's your take on that, Robert? I think I think your your wife and the AAP have have at least what sounds like a really good understanding of both the problem and of of what's reasonable risk mitigation strategies. Just because you know the evidence that fetal alcohol spectrum disorder is is real and is a problem is pretty compelling, and and there's you know really good evidence that binge drinking or heavy drinking is is really bad for, for the fetus and that there's a lot of downstream if effects of that um, in the child. So, you know, in terms of counseling people, you really do want to make sure that that doesn't happen. Right. And, you know, it's also reasonable. Alcohol is not is not an area that I have a, have a ton of research expertise with, but it's also reasonable to assume that like you said, that little bit of nuance mm -hmm. goes from, you know, one drink a month during pregnancy to three drinks a day during pregnancy with before you <laughs> far, and then all of a sudden you've created a huge problem. And right. so, you know, the, the evidence, I don't think the evidence on the lower end of the drinking spectrum is very solid or conclusive, mm. but there's probably limited risk, if any, and it may in some studies that we could we could uh, look at more closely actually almost imply that there might be a benefit to oh, wow. occasional drinking during pregnancy. Mm -hmm. But you know the recommendation of no drinking in during pregnancy is probably the safer one mm -hmm. overall, just because it it prevents that nuance and that that. Uh, increasing creeping in there. Yeah. The the flip side of that I think is you know I remember I, that you, before my wife realized she was pregnant with one of our kids um but after she was in fact pregnant she had a glass of wine one night and the flip side of that is you can't beat yourself up over those kinds of things you know right, over right, those right. here and there things that yes you know, one event is, is unlikely to do something bad. Yes. We have to prevent that sort of creeping towards the catastrophic effects. That's exactly right. That that totalitarian advice giving can lead to a lot of self-judgment and a lot of, you know, self-incrimination and people being so worried about doing little things. And the other part of the flip side is um, it can lead people to saying, I don't believe this recommendation absolutely anyway. like it's just you guys are overstepping so therefore i'm not going to listen to it at all <laughs> i mean it, yeah. yeah unfortunately a lot of parallels with what's going on with mask use and, and covid right you know <laughs> it's like you make a recommendation and it can completely backfire in people's actual behavior the other way right yeah i mean i guess i guess i have a different perspective on this because i i completely understand what you're saying about the nuance and and recommendations for drinking but having been 
pregnant, I can tell you the list of things that you can't do, don't do, don't have this, Mm -hmm. eat sushi, don't eat sushi, you know, have a glass of wine, don't, you know, it's, it's absolutely impossible to keep up with. And, you know, I just had my third pregnancy and I swear the stuff that they told me to do in my first pregnancy, which was completely, I was not allowed to eat deli meat at all whatsoever. And now it was like, oh yeah, I, I, the nurse practitioner actually said, it's fine to have deli meat as long as you don't get it at a place like a gas station. I was like, who <laughs> gets deli meat up? at a gas station? You know, <laughs> That's just a general statement. You know, I, I, of being I, I, so I said, okay, fine. <laughs> so I went about my pregnancy and ate turkey sandwiches, but then, you know, there's hmm. other stuff like medications in pregnancy. And this is, I know, a topic that, Rob, you, you have lots of experience about. And there's certain things like um, you can't have Advil in your pregnancy, mm-hmm. but Tylenol is fine to take during pregnancy, I think, right. is, is what most say. So how could you give us sort of an overall idea of how do people study medication use mm-hmm. in pregnancy? What, what do we where do we get this kind of information from? I know food and, and drink is a, is a bit of a different beast altogether, but, mm-hmm. but medications is something I think that many people would love to learn more about. And it's sort of right in your core area of expertise. It's, it's another one where it's a real challenge and um, the, the challenge arises because, you know, we'd like to know about women who take a certain drug during pregnancy, maybe, um, acetaminophen, for example, versus women who don't take that same drug during pregnancy or, or Tylenol in versus Advil, something like that. The, the problem is, you know, you, with most medications that you take chronically, you don't start taking them during pregnancy. You've been taking them all along. So there's an underlying condition that's driving the need to take the drug And there's usually the underlying condition is driving the reason to pick one drug over the other. So you end up with this really tangled up mixing of effects between the pre-existing condition that started before the pregnancy, the drug during pregnancy, the choice of drugs, um, et cetera. You know, this is a good example of we're just never going to see that many randomized trials of drugs during pregnancy because it's a complicated area. You're not going to see studies that say, okay, you know, you keep taking your Tylenol and you stop taking your Tylenol and we'll see what happens to you. We have to rely on observational data that's really right. kind of tangled together or the, the effects are very tangled together between it's, the conditions and the, the, the drugs. Absolutely. And, and, it's and does that observational data does that usually come from you know the the standard prospective cohort type design do do you guys rely you guys meaning perinatal researchers who who are in this field do you do you focus more on administrative types of data where do you you know find information on who takes tylenol in pregnancy um it's a mix of lots of different uh data sources in in our group, we use mainly administrative data sets, which are just healthcare insurance claims, which ha- are useful but have lots of limitations just because they're, they're relatively coarse data. We also have access to um, some electronic medical record data where you've really got the more of the, the person's full medical history captured in a, in a data set, which is, which is nice. Um, but some of the 
some of the best work in this area comes from uh, different groups that kind of take a data set like one of those two and then augment it with, with other information that they collect by interviewing people or by adding other data sets to the, to the problem. So um, there are, there's another group here in Montreal that does a lot of work with what I would call one of these augmented data sets where they might take the claims, but then link to a bunch of other information to try to, to try to get better answers to the, to the studies, to the study questions. Yeah, yeah, and I think another um, potential issue in observational study designs in this area, you know, when you take something like taking Advil versus Tylenol, you would think you'd be able to control for some of the related health behaviors a lot better than something like, you know, drinking alcohol, let's say. Um, but it's very much wrapped up, I think, in previous recommendations that people may have heard, right? So I think the common belief is that you're not supposed to take Advil during pregnancy. So if you just, you know, observationally study women who do take Advil versus people who take Tylenol, the women who are taking Tylenol may be the ones who are a little bit more up to date on what you should or shouldn't do um, during pregnancy. So there you go. It's, you know, maybe confounded by doing all sorts of other health behaviors that they should be doing, that they've heard they should be doing at least, um, compared to the women who are still taking Advil. Yeah, I think that's that ring true. I think that's a really important point and a really important consideration that I, I is a phenomenon that we've we've observed in lots of studies that mm -hmm. there are sort of and it speaks to the beginning about behaviors clustering together that um, women, pregnant people, families who are engaged or invested in the pregnancy right. and paying attention to, to the, the uh, recommendations, mm -hmm. there's just big differences between them and people who are not on yeah. ways that we can't necessarily measure very well. And we certainly can't measure well when we're thinking about administrative data mm -hmm. or, or even electronic health record data. You really almost need to interview people to, yeah. to understand that kind of um, those kind of behavioral differences. And of course, none of those data sources, uh, or actually I shouldn't say of course, I, I don't think any of those data sources can capture over-the-counter medication use, right? Is that is that true? For the most part, I think that is true. I think um, some, some databases, I will, I'll, let's leave it at that. For the most part, I think that's right. That certainly the ones we work with, we're not going to have over-the-counter um, medication use, which makes studying over-the-counter drugs or studying drugs in particular that are taken sporadically uh, a real challenge. So, so let's talk about some of your studies then. So how did you kind of overcome some of the, just briefly, you know, we're not getting too much into study design, but like how did you measure medication use and what are some of the results from your studies that, you know, what would you recommend that has a very strong evidence base in terms of not taking during pregnancy or do take during pregnancy? Hmm. Um, I have one study that I'm working on that I, I think I probably can't talk about yet, unfortunately, but I think <laughs> oh, uh, gosh. I will point back to one, one of our studies in, in my drug safety research network in Canada, 
that um, addressed pregnancy that I think was an important consideration is, and this circles back to the question that you guys were asking earlier about recommendations and about um, um, risk communication that, um, and this was a study where we know already that um, isotretinoin, the acne medication has uh, very, very significant effects on, on the baby on birth defects. Mm. That's and something like uh, Accutane, right? Something like that, Retin-A, right. yeah. that kind of stuff. Yeah, okay. yeah, I think that's right, Accutane. Mm -hmm. And so we know that that's the case. And we did a study, oh, this would have been five or seven years ago, looking at how it was being prescribed in, in pregnancy. And really the way it should be prescribed is not during pregnancy. If it's in a, a young woman, uh, she, ideally she should work through other treatments and then she should be in a situation where she can't get pregnant before you even consider prescribing uh, Accutane. And there were, you know, there are recommendations that say you should be on birth control or you should be on some other preventative uh, approach. And it turns out that the, the Accutane, Accutane was being prescribed without these, these um, restrictions in place mm. before, uh, before the, the woman or the young woman was given the drug. And this leads to you know, too many pregnancies with, with yeah. terrible birth defects. And so mm. it's not so much a comparison study of drug A versus drug B, because we already know drug A is bad. Mm -hmm. but, you know, it came out clearly that you should not consider taking this drug and that probably we in public health need to do a better job making sure that people are not using this drug in any situation where pregnancy might occur. Got it. Yeah, how, so how, do, you, how do you, uh, okay, so that's interesting. So that's like risk communication before the a point, you know, someone's even pregnant. <laughs> so there's exactly. a whole nother conversation that we were planning to have <laughs> as opposed to you are pregnant, what can you do, what can't you do? Wow, that adds just a whole nother level of um, risk communication difficulty. Um, but what about what you've learned from, you know, that you could tell people who are pregnant in terms of, you know, are there certain medications that you've studied that have, that, that are, you know, maybe more um, controversial? I don't know if that's the word, but <laughs> that we're still, we don't know as much. People are confused about, is what I'm saying, where they're like, I, should I or shouldn't I take this? Is this really that bad? Advil, for example. I mean, is it really that bad, <laughs> you know, when, you, when you're pregnant? And I, I guess uh, also to help focus that question, yeah. you know, um, I know something that I've talked to you about, Rob, in the past is this idea that acetaminophen causes ADHD or, you know, mm -hmm. whatever drug of the day. This always reminds me of that political cartoon with the epidemiology spinning wheels where you, you know, you spin <laughs> the wheel for the drug of the day and you spin the wheel for the outcome of interest. Right. And, you know, oh, look, it's acetaminophen and ADHD. So, yeah. you know, what have you have you done any research um, or worked with anyone that's done research on, on that topic? So actually, one of one of my current postdoc fellows, Reem Masarwa, uh, published a study, a systematic review of acetaminophen and ADHD a couple of years ago, and she roughly came to the conclusion that 
there was a very small observed association, but that it was probably due to confounding by characteristics of the mother. That is, mm. nothing about the acetaminophen taking mothers was different from the ones who didn't take it. Mm. And so it's probably, um, it's probably not a big problem. And I think mm. the, the second piece of advice that, that um, one needs to think about in that setting is the sort of the strength of the evidence around the entire question of taking the drug. And, and um, I haven't done work in this specific area, but in some of the, in some of the questions around antidepressants, mm -hmm. um, yes. it's really important to factor in what are the potential risks of the antidepressant use on the, the baby? And there's some, there's some data on presence or absence of, of a bunch of different uh, conditions. It's not, some of it is stronger than others, uh, but also mm -hmm. what is the effect or the potential effect of discontinuing the antidepressant on yeah. the mother's health? And you know, de depression is a serious disease. Postpartum depression is a very serious uh, problem. Absolutely. So the, the short end answer to that is you, those almost need to be evaluated on a case by case basis. And it really is, is the time to have a really thorough conversation with your, your obstetrician or your GP yeah. to make an informed decision about, about those kinds of considerations because you don't Absolutely. want to remove a drug because of a hypothetical risk right. that then creates another problem for the mother that might end up being worse than, than the, right. the one we start with. And so it's hard to make a generalizable statement there, but it is important to think case by case about all of the risks and benefits. Right. I so, love that answer. I love that answer so much because there's so much about pregnancy that really needs tailored, individualized advice. You know, there's there's some situations where it might be warranted to keep a mother on a particular medication or, you know, do something for the, the baby that maybe is not the best choice for the mother. You know, likewise, I know um, some prenatal vitamins, for example, make women who have morning sickness or rather whatever we call it all day sickness now, you know, it, it might really exacerbate some of that, but it's clearly in the best interest of the baby to have prenatal vitamins. So does a woman stop taking it? Mm -hmm. You know, the, these are really complicated discussions that are not easily um, answered by, you know, broad guidelines and recommendations, you know, statements that, that apply to everyone, because that's, that's not true. But I wanted to segue into another topic that I'm really um, excited to ask you about while we have you here, um, which is sort of let's fast forward to a healthy, hopefully a healthy baby is born, they're delivered, however they're delivered, you know, you, you get sent home from the hospital, maybe a day, a couple days later, and you have this like tiny little Thing that looks at you and you have to provide all of the things that keep it alive. Um, or two as the case. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, another area that you're, um, you have a lot of expertise on is um, maternal and child health, you know, after delivery. So I guess one of the first things and one of the potentially the most controversial things about this time period is how you feed your baby, yeah. um, whether it's by breastfeeding or by infant formula or some combination of those two things. And there's a lot of messaging um, about breast is best. It, you know, there's yeah. almost 
every hospital I've seen, I've delivered in three different hospitals and there's always posters about breastfeeding. Um, and so I guess I wanted to talk to you about why, why that messaging is out there um, and whether you know, the evidence really points to breastfeeding being best for infant health, uh, both in the short and long-term. Great question. Yeah, that is that is a great question, and and we could easily spend the next forty five minutes uh, <laughs> question may. alone. I think um, there's there's a few things that that um, we can sort of unpack in that question. I think um, the the first is, and I'll go back to the beginning. Um, Breastfeeding and feeding your baby is a very hard thing for us to study because, as you said, you've you've been you've been you're you're at home, you're excited and terrified. You've got this one or two or more <laughs> things that you have to to take care of, and you've got lots of conflicting information, mm -hmm. and you've got this factor of the that you know. Um, if you've been preparing for the last six months that you're going to be breastfeeding your baby, you're probably going to be giving that uh, a, a really strong try. Maybe not. Um, it's just a hard problem to study. So um, probably the study that I put the most weight in um, for this kind of question is the, the PROBIT study or Pro Promotion of Breastfeeding Intervention Trial that my colleague Mike Kramer did um, really over the last 20 to 25 years. It started in the late 90s where I had said earlier, randomized studies are hard to come by, but Mike was able to randomize hospitals to promote breastfeeding versus oh, wow. usual care. That's and this was done in the 1990s in Belarus where usual care involved some breastfeeding, but not that much. So he was able to generate these two cohorts where, or these two groups where one breastfed a lot more than the other. Mm -hmm. And the only difference was that they had been randomized or their hospital had been randomized to this, this promotion intervention um, or not. So you take away a lot of that mixing of effects coming from the engagement of the parents and the interest of the parents in, in, um, in doing the best. And you just get, you know, some were encouraged and breastfed more and others, and others uh, didn't. And you saw this fairly substantial, again, difference in the breastfeeding rates. And there were a lot of interesting findings coming out of this study. I think um, most important, in the short run was there are benefits to breastfeeding in the short run. You see um, fewer GI infections. You see maybe evidence of other infections being reduced in the first year in breastfed versus uh, formula-fed infants. Short-term um, meaning how long? I would say the, the, during the breastfeeding interval, so six, year, six months to a year. So okay, gotcha. Short term. So mm -hmm. during that infant period where you're actively breastfeeding, you see these, these non-trivial benefits that, you know, that the babies are getting sick less with GI infections and um, 
maybe some evidence of respiratory infections uh, as well. The other thing that this study showed that I think is important is there's a, there's a sort of conventional wisdom that formula-fed kids end up heavier at the end of the first year than, than breastfed kids. And in this study, the two groups, the, in the, those who were encouraged to breastfeed and those who weren't, ended up about the same size over the course mm. of the first year, mm, which interesting. is reassuring in terms of thinking about longer term yeah. growth uh, benefits of, of the two, um, of the two, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, of breastfeeding versus not. Right, right. The, in the long run, no, yeah, the long run, <laughs> you know, if you, and by long run now I'm thinking, uh, say, you know, five to seven years old, I'm trying, I can't remember the exact dates of the second follow-up, mm -hmm. but it was in that sort of mid-childhood years, mm -hmm. third, there were third and fourth follow-ups. I think these kids are now in their, in their late teens, early twenties, and they're still mm -hmm. being followed, which is a, a really um, interesting long-term study uh, experiment. But we looked at uh, a bunch of outcomes in sort of mid-childhood, and there's the the effects of breastfeeding are are zero to mild at that oh, long. So there it is. <laughs> you know, you you don't see major differences in in growth mm -hmm. at those older ages. You don't see much in terms of other health characteristics um, at those older ages. The, the one interesting older, older or childhood phenomenon that, that potentially has some, something to say for it or something to think about was the, the two groups differed or they didn't differ on IQ overall or school performance, but there were some differences where it appeared that the breastfeeding group had higher verbal IQ huh. than the than the the non the less breastfed group, and I don't think it's fair to attribute that to breastfeeding necessarily. Mm. It's it's plausible that it's related to just the interaction between the mother and the baby during the first year of life, mm. maybe or communication. Maybe there's more. Um, uh, language exchange early on, um, but that was an interesting phenomenon to see there. That there mm. there did appear to be a, a hint of of an association. Okay. But for, for the most part, slim to none in terms of the effect of breastfeeding, which is interesting because, as Haley mentioned, and we and any of us who have had a kid or planning to have a kid know, they really do push this breastfeeding thing and. Um, it creates a lot of anxiety for a lot of moms. It creates a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of stress and decision-making. And, you know, I know for a lot of women, they, they try and it's very difficult for some women and stopping seems like something bad that you're doing to your child, you know? And I, it's just very interesting to me that, um, you know, maybe this is an example of where the evidence base may not necessarily meet the recommendations. Maybe that's not a true statement. Maybe I'm overblowing it by saying that, um, but I don't know. Here we are. That's the that's the message people are getting. <laughs> you know. So that's a that's I you've 
hit on a challenging, again, and it, it connects back to a number of the conver conversations we've been having, a challenging public health question. Mm -hmm. um, the, the evidence that starting breastfeeding is a good idea is pretty strong because these okay. issues are, are real. Mm -hmm. um, the, the, the very early first year of life health benefits are, are real. Mm -hmm. but it may be a matter of thinking about, about it as the, we ought to nuance our public health message or our, our clinical mm -hmm. to mothers to say, try, and if you really want to try, try hard, but it's Don't kill failure if you can't, if it doesn't work. Right. If, the, if, if, if for whatever reasons it doesn't work, your kid will be okay. You're going to be okay, and your and your child is is almost certainly going to be okay. And you know, five years from now, there there's going to be they're not going to look any different from the 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 rest of their friends. I think this is another thing that I think is important to stress when we're talking about pregnancy and and behaviors and exposures during pregnancy is that pregnancy and children are surprisingly robust to what we mm -hmm. can throw at them. Phew. Yeah. <laughs> Thank goodness, right? Yeah. It's a good thing. It's yeah. also, you know, as I, as I hear you talk about this, I'm amazed as, uh, you know, a parent and an epidemiologist about how irredeemably confounded this, these associations must be in many working, certainly American mothers who, you know, have to go back to work after yeah. six weeks or three months, or if you're really lucky, four months, you know, something like that. Um, and if you can stay home and breastfeed for six months, that's a totally different sure. uh, calculus than it is for a mom who has to go back to work at six weeks maybe potentially pumping in some broom closet or, you know, your car or wherever you can, you know, I just, I don't see how the public health messaging and the evidence we have really supports um, pushing moms to, to go to those extremes to get their kids breastfed. I, ju I just don't understand, you know, how we arrived at this point. So that you... I, I want to sort of talk about a couple of things you said. I think, first of all, um, you illustrated nicely how studying breastfeeding with observational data is, is hard because those two mothers you described, the one who is back at work at six, back at work at six months versus the one who's staying home for the whole first year, are are different on a number of right. uh, factors that would be very hard to measure. Yeah. Um, and even within the the mothers who go back at six weeks or six, or the the ones who are who who the ones who go to the trouble of breastfeeding and pumping and maintaining yeah. that, and the ones who don't are going to differ on another different set of yeah. Uh, yeah. of. Of factors, so just just studying that is really is really hard, and that's why I think studies like Probit, 
which attempt to exploit some other source of, of variation, in this case, randomizing the hospitals, um, get you to, to perhaps, I, I would argue, much better answers to that kinds of question. They're, they're, they're different studies and there's some other noise that gets thrown into those studies, but the decision to continue to breastfeed or the decision to stop breastfeeding or even to start breastfeeding is so tangled up in yeah, exactly. your yeah. own personal situation that right. it's, it's almost impossible to study it. Very well. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, all very good points. Uh, another thing I just want to say out loud because it's been floating behind a lot of what we're saying um, is that a lot of, you know, we're talking about these risk benefit ratios for a lot of these decisions. And I just want to make sure we're not only saying it's about the benefit to the baby versus the benefit to the mother, you know, because in many cases, what's good for the mother is what's good for the baby. I think the antidepression is a perfect example. Um, breastfeeding is a perfect example. If a woman is very, if a mom is super stressed out or depressed, it's not going to be good for the baby or the moms. So, you know, that has to factor into a lot of the, the um, you know, the decision-making here. So yeah, well, I mean, this we could talk about formula versus I, another issue. I would I, I would think is that formula may be more or nutritious now than it was in the past, right? <laughs> so you can't just say formula versus breastfeeding, right? Because you've got maybe I don't know actually maybe formula hasn't changed in twenty five years, but I would think that they've been able to make it more nutritious over time, right? So it could, it could get to the point where it's just as good as breastfeeding. That's, that's an important point. And you remind me of, um, from this is, this is dating myself. It's from when I was a kid <laughs> and there being campaigns against the formula companies because they were encouraging, encouraging women to use formula in settings where they may not, may not have access to clean and mm -hmm. uncontaminated water to mix the formula with. And, you know, in, in those kinds of settings where, you know, maybe you're making formula with parasite infested water. It's clearly better to be breastfeeding than, than yeah, using formula. So, right. you know. The comparison's important. Exactly. Yeah. North, North American, current North American formula versus formula in low and middle income countries of the 70s. Those are entirely different yeah. questions to be or entirely different things. The formula aisle is a crazy place, I will oh, tell gosh. you. You know, you go down, there's like 42 different colors. One has iron, one's lactose-free. You know, it's, yeah. it's uh, yeah, it's, 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 it is very hard to disentangle. Tyranny of choice. You know, yeah. which, which is quote best if there is, uh, you know, a single best, which I think is probably a false narrative. I think there's, there's probably no single best choice for everyone on any of these topics. Right. <laughs> well, the, the one last thing we'll ask about, you know, formula versus breastfeeding is, like, you know, is there any truth to passing on antibodies from the mother to the child to um, children who are breastfed having less allergies? You know, there's certain things that you can't put in formula, right? That is only uh, produced by a mother and passed on to a child. And so, are, you know, are there aspects that you cannot get from formula that do seem to have a benefit for breastfeeding? I'm probably not able to answer part of this question right now, just because I don't have the, the information at my mm -hmm. fingertips about 
I know that there are important things going on, say, during the breastfeeding period, during that first six months, where in some cases, there are things that the, the breast milk conveys that the formula doesn't, and that would likely have to do with antibodies and things like that. The other side, you know, there are things like um, vitamin supplements that are in formula that are not in breast milk. So That's early true. in life, in, in the breastfeeding period, there are differences, but I'm not that confident to be able to say what the, what the evidence supports there. Yeah. Um, if I point back to the probit study, we did look at whether, whether there were long-term differences in allergies mm -hmm. uh, in the breastfed kids or predominantly breastfed kids versus, the, versus not. And there weren't as they got okay. older. So there may be short-term associations mm -hmm. They wash out as the kids get older. Okay, got it. Good to know. Um, okay, so that that really helps clarify. I think some of the some of the most common, you know, misconceptions I would say about about breastfeeding versus formula feeding. And I think that aside from feeding, the the topic that most parents are curious about, um, mm. certainly when you have a newborn, is sleep or. Mm. Uh, rather the lack of sleep <laughs> that you are going to be getting for, for a while. I'm so um, scared. Yeah, you, you probably should be. Um, the, the whole idea for this podcast actually came up because um, Brian sent out an email saying, does anyone have any podcast topics? And I looked at it on my phone at three o'clock in the morning um, after I had been Googling is co-sleeping really that bad because I was so <laughs> tired and your name, Rob, came up uh, as part of an NPR article that you did a few years ago. And the title of that article is, Is Sleeping With Your Baby Really As Bad As Doctors Say? Um, so it was a perfect hit right from, from my the Google horse's search. mouth. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, so I guess, you know, that's, that's a good lead off question. Um, is sleeping with your baby, is co-sleeping really as bad as doctors say? Um. I, again, this is a complicated question, so I'll try to <laughs> take it apart into a few separate uh, 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 groups. There's, there are a lot of studies that look at this. Um, fortunately, SIDS and, and the other really bad outcomes that could uh, come from co-sleeping are quite rare, so these studies tend to be huge and then have very small numbers of actual uh, uh, deaths in them, which makes it harder for us to study. But um, there does seem to be evidence that co-sleeping in certain settings, and they're not really that surprising settings, um, is probably is is not a good idea. Not probably not a good idea, but it's not a good idea. So um, for safety reasons. Yeah, for safety reasons. Safety. Sleeping on the sofa with your baby. Um, alcohol consumption around the time of sleeping with your baby, uh, et cetera. Those kinds of things put the parents and the baby in the environment where you know, it's possible that the baby will suffocate because yes. there's there and, and, and the parent won't be alert enough to, to mm. wake themselves up. Um, but in the absence of those factors, um, the, the evidence is a little bit more inconclusive mm -hmm. and um, the actual, in the absence of those factors, the actual risk is very low. Mm -hmm. even, even if co-sleeping does elevate the risk of SIDS a little bit, 
the overall risk of SIDS is very is very low. So you you right. kind of are in a situation with the with with co-sleeping where we don't absent those really obvious risk factors, we don't really know what the answer is, mm -hmm. but the risk is quite the risk is likely quite low, even if it's even if it's real. So um the risk of a catastrophic event like smothering yeah. your kid, but yeah. but I mean, what about developmental issues? I mean, I think that like part of coast the the argument against co sleeping that at least I've heard isn't just like you might roll onto your baby. It's that this is just bad for the kid. They'll never learn to sleep in their own room. You know, like you're you're developing this attachment problem that you know it, it's going to take years to go away. I mean, is there any evidence of that? <laughs> you know. On that one, I think I'm going to have to say I don't really know the answer Punt to that. I think uh, that uh, I, I would guess that there's probably not a lot of high quality studies of those mm. kinds of questions out there and a lot of anecdotal evidence about what's good and bad, but I don't really know what the, gotcha. what the answers are. That would I would be interested to know. Yeah. Um, yeah. I do know that the one thing my, one of my friends said about about his kids that um, that rings true to me. And, and he was talking about his kids' sleeping behavior. He said, as soon as you think you have their, your kids' sleeping behavior figured out, they change. That's exactly absolutely. true. That was absolutely. So, oh my gosh. Yeah, no, absolutely. I I'm curious about, you know, whether the challenge about answering questions about co-sleeping is related to what we have to compare it to. So as you mentioned, one of the great successes of epidemiology um, as of you know, the past couple of decades has been this idea of what is the safest sleep position for infants. And, and that would be, um, I believe, sleeping on your back. And so when you're comparing sleeping on your back, which has a very, very, very low risk of SIDS, let's say, to something like sleeping on the sofa with your parents, which has a very, very low risk of SIDS, you know, it, it makes the, the conclusions that you draw from those type of comparisons hard to interpret. Um, so I guess I wanted to ask, you know, what your thoughts are on, on sleep position more broadly beyond the co-sleeping question. I, I, I think you raised an excellent question and it, that's really important. And it, it permeates a lot of these, these uh, questions we've been talking about today that there's really sort of a gradation of exposure from mm -hmm. safe, you know, on the back in the crib with no pillows and no blankets to progressively riskier and riskier. And we have limited data on everywhere in between the, the least risky and the most risky. And, you know, we kind of have to, we kind of have to make some assumptions and some almost interpolations between those two extremes and say, okay, if this is the least risky and this is the most risky, maybe a little bit away from this one is okay. Um, maybe if I sleep the, the baby on his back um, in a queen size bed with me beside him, but with no blankets and no pillows or limited blankets and pillows, that's okay. So on and so on. And maybe, you know, with the parents on the sofa is bad, but you know, without the parents on the sofa is probably not that good either. Mm. Yeah. 
but it's a, it's a gradation of, yeah. of, of evidence. And then this comes back to where we start at the beginning where um, the risk communication on this is mm-hmm. tricky because it may just be easiest to say the best position is on your back. All right. Alone, right, of course. And without pillows that, all around and yeah. And that prevents any of that sort of creeping of, of behavior yeah. towards the stuff that actually is really risky. Got it. Wow. Well, you know, we honestly we could ask you questions for another three hours. Yeah, we could. Um, <laughs> but unfortunately, I think you know, we're gonna have to end the conversation here. And you know, hopefully our listeners got some <laughs> information other than the fact that perinatal epidemiology is really difficult to do with observational studies. And, um, you know, I, I think that one of the takeaways here is things are not just black and white, right? There's a lot of gray areas and you really have to weigh risk and benefits, personal situations, what's good for the mom is good for the baby. So you got to keep that in mind. Um, difficult, difficult stuff. And it's difficult for us as health professionals to relay this information in a way that, that uh, gives that nuance because nuance is difficult. People want a yes or no, right? And we often don't have a yes or no, except for don't binge drink. (laughs) That's a clear one. No, I, I know exactly what you mean. And, you know, I went through this almost 20 years ago when, with my firstborn and Mm -hmm. you are going through it now. Mm -hmm. And you know we're spo- we're health professionals. We're supposed to be understanding the evidence and knowing what to do. And it's overwhelming for us. Yes, exactly. Uh, it is just an overwhelming. <laughs> That's right. Situation. Yeah. And you know we can take some solace in the idea that we know that there are a few few behaviors that we know that are really problematic, like yeah. heavy drinking. Mm-hmm. That. We know we need to stay away from those, and we know we need to stay away from some of these other things. But again, we we need to remember that the process is relatively robust; that kids yes. mostly turn out well. You know, kids are resilient. Exactly. Great place. Yes, thankfully. All right. Well, that is a very good place to end this. Um, so, thank you, Robert and Haley, for joining us on this episode of Epi Counts. Um, I would like to thank Sue Bevan for producing this episode. And before we go, if you're an epidemiologist, I strongly recommend you consider becoming a member of the Society for Epidemiologic Research. Membership gets you a discounted fee for the annual meeting, which will be held virtually again this year, June 22nd through 25th. Hopefully we're in person next year, fingers crossed, in Chicago, actually, right? My town. Um, Membership also gets you access to the SCR library, which has some great learning materials, seminars, and activities. Find out more at epiresearch.org. We really appreciate you listening. We'll be back with another episode soon.